Ev, it's another stick of fork in it. Yeah. It's like my favorite that we do. It's Mm. one of many hats that we all wear that lean into this podcast, but it's like my favorite, I think. So fun. Um, Matt Spence is joining us once again, one of the original team to kind of lead us today. And Matt, why don't you introduce our guest? Because it's someone that you have worked with most recently and know pretty well. Yes, I'm, I'm really excited about our guest today. So uh, we have with us Joanna Burleson. Joanna is uh, with the Monitor Institute by Deloitte. Joanna can tell you a little bit more about herself, and I'm sure we'll get into that in the next few minutes. But uh, from, from our side, we've just been really, really fortunate to get to know Joanna over the past year as she has guided our team through the beginning phases of this strategic planning process that we talked about the last time we were together. Um, Joanna and her team are fantastic. They've rotated through some other folks that that work alongside Joanna, but we have been very, very grateful to have her with us from the beginning and just appreciate her guidance, her wisdom, um, and sometimes just her uh, ability to calm the room down get us to take a step back and say is that really where you're headed right now is this you know are 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 we on the right track or have we gotten a little sidetracked and usually the answer is we've gotten sidetracked (laughs) well that sounds like a perfect person to have in our world for sure uh joanna you're coming to us from boston I am yes, just just on the outskirts of Boston. I'm I'm usually have a view to my backyard, which is pretty green, but it's winter here and the leaves are down, so you probably don't want to see the bare branches. Yes, I'm in the yeah. suburb. So, are are you originally from Boston? Tell us a little bit about your background, where you've lived, sure. and what drove you there. Yeah, I actually grew up in California, so I am a west coast girl through and through i I grew up in southern california i migrated north for my education so once i graduated i spent time in school in northern california and pretty much lived in california through my early professional career so i my my early professional working days were also in the bay area and i left California, found myself in the UK for a number of years. So I also spent some time working there for about six years. And so I springed forward to the UK and then it landed back in the Boston area. So I am a sort of adopted New Englander at this point, but don't have any plans on on leaving. We really love it here. That's amazing. So um, tell us a little bit about family and family life there. Yeah, so I am married to my husband, Marcos, who is Portuguese. So we are a Portuguese-American family. We have three kids who are still in school. So I've got uh, two elementary-age children and a middle schooler. So that's fun, keeping us busy. We have a dog. We have a guinea pig. So we are living the full full suburban life here. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, it's pretty nice. How's middle school going? I know that between Matt and I get middle school. Yeah. Um, I've got a middle schooler who has such a calm head on her shoulders. So one thing she she inherited from me, Matt, <clears throat> is 
calm and steady. And so if you know, I think about all three of my children, she's the one to enter into middle school and just seamlessly integrate into it, you know, make really meaningful friendships. So it's been it's been really good for her. And here we're in a pretty large school system. So it's a large school, right? It's it's close to a thousand kids. Um, but she's been she's been great. So we'll see. But it's still no, we're still we're not we're not teenager yet. So we'll see what happens in the next couple of years. I don't know. I think Matt can agree. Um, I have three as well. And my first one, you described, it's a boy, but um, it's the same, right? It's oldest, oldest child syndrome, maybe, right? I think so. Responsible, thoughtful. Yeah. Considerate. Exactly. My son is 31 years old and his very best friends to this day are from middle school. Oh, that's amazing. That's cool. So that's that's that oldest child. Thing. <laughs> Although we love the middle and the baby in their own way. Um, so, what do you guys do in your free time as a family? What do you enjoy doing? Uh, um, so, well, there's like the things that we do as a family, and the things that I try and do in my own small carved out periods of time. Um, so, because we've got children at this age, there is a lot of the the extracurriculars that consume a lot of our time, right? Anyone who's who's had children in this age group know we're spending our weekends driving to Taekwondo, we're doing track and field, we're doing a, a lot of that. And so that's where we tend to spend most of our time. I am a, I'm currently coaching track and field, which I tell people I never ran, like I was not involved. At, I didn't know sports as a young person, but now I'm like, this is my opportunity to do something where I feel like I can learn. So i spending a lot of time coaching track and field, which has been amazing. Um, we are also, I would say a musical family but by choice for the adults, at least for me. So um, most of the kids are playing some instrument and I started piano lessons in my forties, seeing my children learn. So I was like, I also want to do some of that. So definitely didn't grow up with any musical education, but now try and try and do a little bit of it. Do you guys have the dual piano recital? No, we have tried. <laughs> Gabby is my my oldest. Um, she and I, I mean, we're probably around the same level in terms of our abilities. And our teacher, because we have a shared teacher, which is often funny when they walk in and they're looking for Joanna as in a child. I'm like, no, you're teaching me. <laughs> and we did have one piano teacher who, you know, who brought us a piece that we could play together. And it, we maybe lasted three weeks before we were both like driving each other crazy trying to. It was um it was actually a um, a ragtime version of Fur Elise. I don't know if you if you know what Fur Elise is, but it was you know it was essentially reimagined with ragtime with four hands on the piano. Yeah. Way too complex for our. <laughs> 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 yeah, but, that's but the YouTube video was amazing. Like, yeah, we want to do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, Matt has, um, he's driving around too. Like he's, um, I've got to give him love. I always do on his work-life balance. There's just, he's got, he does it all. Um, but, you know, Matt, are you doing the um, American Ninja Warrior training with your son? Like Joanna's doing? Ah. I, I do not swing from the things that my 12-year-old <laughs> swings from. And no, I, I, there would be heavy medical debt in, in my <laughs> near future. That would be the case. Um, I do try to work out with the boys, though. So we, I 
And when I'm coaching soccer, I'm out there in spikes, running around, you know, pulling my groin, whatever it is, but playing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I have to be in traction the next day and take it very, very slow. But yeah, yeah I don't do Ninja Warrior. I'm not running up a work wall. <laughs> yeah, I just think that's so unique. I had to pull that in there, Joanna. He sends me videos of uh, his his sons doing these crazy, wonderful, different things as part of their extracurriculars. So I just had to kind of pull that in because I had that image of you flying across those monkey bars and doing that jump swing thing. Any <laughs> <laughs> video on that? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I <like> <laughs> is, of course, a joy, you know, and you know, it's got its ups and its downs, but, you know, we're all about food. So, Joanne, do you have a memory around the table um, with your family that kind of resonates? It's like one of your favorite memories. Yeah, I saw this question in the prep questions and, and it had me thinking because this also came up recently. I recently attended and helped design a, co uh, a convening with a very large group of people, around 450 people. And we were trying to, give me a moment, I'm gonna go off on a tangent here, to bring that many people together, right? To really think about a set of, a set of, of social issues in particular, many of whom don't know each other. We have, what, how can we make connections? And so rather than having everyone come into a big, essentially ballroom and sit down and, and face some speakers, we broke into smaller groups and in fact, at different affinity tables, something that spoke to you, so a, a part of your identity. You might be connected to education, you might have um, you know, a, a racial or ethnic identity group that you wanna connect to, to build trust and relationships. And so we just invited people into these spaces. They chose their own adventure and had a meal. So the, their first entry into this space was through a meal with strangers, through whom you have some shared connection. I sat actually at a generational table, so I'm, I'm Gen X. And we had a set of questions, which were exactly this. So think about what is your favorite food or a positive food memory that you wanna share with the table while you're breaking bread together. Mm -hmm. And so uh, mine are a couple of things. This is from my childhood. And I'm sure a lot of people are like this, like what are the, what are the comfort foods? that I remember and that have a particular, I think, scent for me now as an adult. So one is simply uh, onions and potatoes frying in butter in a cast mm -hmm. iron skillet. That's a breakfast food that my father would make on the weekends. Not every weekend, but it was a thing. So now whenever I have that smell and I have the cast iron, then whatever, potatoes and onions frying in butter, that's it. And then the second one is my mother would make, my mother was a cook she was she didn't do any of the cooking in our house with the exception of one thing that she made which i've i've never really made but she essentially had this electric skillet it was kind of i think it was like back then it was the equivalent of like a slow cooker but you you plugged it in except it was maybe a little bit more old school she'd throw some type of giant roast in there with tons of bouillon you remember those like little cubes that you, mm -hmm. you know lost like concentrated a little chemically smell and taste with water and carrots and she just let that that thing would sit there right and would become a roast like a brisket or something like that very distinct intense smell and taste so whenever i kind of smell that bouillon smell it takes me back to my mom's electric skillet roast so it's those two things for me 
that evoking very positive positive memories from when I was a kid. That, that sounds I, incredible. I, I can relate yeah. to all of those. I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, absolutely. Even the pot roast. And I know what you're talking about. The pan that's like a little bit deeper. You plug it in. Has yes. a little. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you just took me back to my own uh, kitchen when I was a kid as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Same thing. You know, yeah. So, you know, jumping forward, you know, you just, you talked about coaching um, uh, track, track and field mm-hmm. for your kids, yeah. you know, and I, I wonder, you know, where, where did you find that? Cause obviously are, you, you are very successful at coaching folks in the, in the right direction. And from what I understand, Kind of, especially when you just explained the way that room was set up for people to have their own comfort, you put a lot of thought behind it. As a kid, as a teen, as an adult, what led you to that path? What did you see in yourself to place you in these with that that comfort space? What was your first inclination? This is where you fit. Mm, uh, given what I do now, yeah. Mm. So, like most people, I I. Well, maybe this isn't true. I am not uh, the sort of person who thinks 10 years out, uh, identifies a goal and sort of charts my path, right? And I think it's kind of connected to my personality as well, which is, while I'm, I think I'm fairly driven, um, I, I often go with opportunities that are provided to me and, and, and take advantage of sort of the little surprises that come along the way. So I, Matt knows this, um, but I, I spend a lot of my time in the social sector. I'm a consultant, I do strategy work, I'm often working with nonprofits and, and foundations, but I haven't been doing this um, for all of my career. I was a consultant to the corporate sector for many years before I moved into the, into the social sector. How did I find myself there, right? Um, it is in some ways for a lot of folks a really aspirational career and I feel so privileged in particular to be doing this now. Um, but if I were to look back over the arc of my career, you know, it's certainly a, a combination of luck and persistence and, um, and some some spontaneity in terms of opportunities that came to me at the time. Um, I mentioned, you know, I grew up in California, went to college, I studied economics because in some ways that topic spoke to me. It, there's some, um, a little bit of robustness in terms of the quantitative nature of it, which uh, often speaks to me, right? You know what an answer can be, right? In, in a world in which sometimes we live with, with a lot of uncertainty. So it was very familiar and comforting to me to find logic behind things that I saw happening out in the world, right? Inflation, well, what does that mean? Actually, I can understand that through the lens of numbers and it really spoke to me. Um, and, you know, I did that for a couple of, of years. I graduated and, and did economic consulting, which is essentially like getting a mini PhD in economics. Um, I went deep into analysis, but I, I, I actually didn't have the opportunity to build deep relationships either with my colleagues or clients because I was doing robust research. And so I I went to business school, again, in the spirit of like, I don't know what I wanna do, but it's probably not this, like a lot of people do. Um, And and so that's what I did. I spent a couple of years exploring. I went to business school. It seemed like the right thing to do for for where I was in my career um, and where my interests lay. 
and found myself at least dipping a toe in this mysterious thing called consulting, which most people don't know what it is. Even now, it's hard to describe, but it seems like a good place to try some things out and learn a whole lot, a whole different set of skills. And so I, I did that and I started that work at a place called the Monitor Group, um, completely open to learning anything I could rather than coming in and saying, I want to do this within five years, I want to be a partner, was really in the spirit of learning. And, and what I'll say is what, what got me to where I am today is recognizing that I find the most value in my work from the people that I work with. And so there is some choice making that happens in a career in consulting. You can choose um, the industry that you spend your time in. You might have a real passion for healthcare, for example. You can choose to spend your time in a particular functional area. I might be really drawn to technology and technology implementations versus strategy. And I learned a couple of lessons early on in my career to not be driven solely by the content, but really to seek out the people that I, um, that I get energy from working with. Um, and so that's what I did. Um, so I spent a lot of time on the corporate side, working with companies and in issue areas that I, I wouldn't have chosen normally, but like, these are the people that I want to spend my time with. I admire them. Um, they're doing great work and I can see myself doing this for a long period of time. And that's how I ended up doing what I'm doing now with the Monitor Institute by Deloitte. I didn't, I didn't come to this work saying I'm really pa passionate about social impact. I am now, but that wasn't actually what me, what drew me to, it was the people, the people that I got connected to. And I saw a community of individuals and that I admired, that I respected, and I saw a future for me in, in, in this work with them. And so it's like, this is a, a big piece of advice that I give to early consultants as well, who often seek advice. I've got a path here. I can choose to go in this direction or that direction. And like, if, if, if it was me, what does your gut tell you? Who do you want to work with? Take a step back from the content. Um, and that, I think that's, um, it's served me well right, over the years. Well, and the, the thing I find so interesting about that, Joanna, is that it became clear right away when we started working with you that you are just a naturally curious person. Uh, and I think, I feel like that's a big part of, of what you just shared is that you didn't need to hone in and go very, very deep on one particular thing and then be the person, the guru that go, everyone goes to for the answers. Yeah. You, you enjoy the process of exploring. And yeah. that's been really fun to, to walk alongside. You know, mm -hmm. you've done one of the things I really appreciate about working with the Monitor Institute and you in particular is that you have a way of walking alongside us and pointing out things. You know, I think of that in some senses as, as some of the best work you do is like, hey, did you notice over there how that connects to this thing over here? You guys might want to spend some time on that. And then you'll just kind of step back mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. <laughs> and let us fiddle with it for a while and then tell us what we did wrong. Yes. Yeah. That's the delight in this work. I mean, people ask me, what do I love most about my work? It is the, it's the inquiry in it. Um, 
I, I, I am delighted when I get to know an organization in the early days and get to ask all the questions, right? It's about discovery. Uh, it's about being confident and okay with what I don't know, because that actually what that, that element is what I think leads to really great work. Uh, it's recognizing what we don't know, what we're curious about and what we do know, right? What we're really great at. Um, it's a it's a huge part of being a consultant as well, and it's a huge part of our work. And that uh, Matt, I think this is that's definitely the orientation we had towards our work with you and with every client. I would never um, presume that I am an expert in what my clients do because I'm not. I might know something. There might be some adjacency to a previous client, or there might be some themes that I can draw on but I would never walk into a room and assume I know the answer or that I actually deeply understand your work in a way that you do. And even by saying that myself and saying that to our teams, it both takes the pressure off. So we're not trying to show up in a disingenuous way as if we know the answer or we're going to deliver something that you couldn't deliver yourself. But we do have a way of asking the right questions, listening deeply, to what we hear and then asking more questions. So it becomes this really compelling cycle of inquiry, thinking together, putting ideas together and then repeating that, right? Um, and so, I think that's what's really powerful in strategy work because that's, that's really what it is. Absolutely, I, I wanna pick at, at something you just said for a second because I think it's really interesting. Um, you talked about your ability to deeply listen. Uh, I think it's such a valuable skill, and in in my experience, so many people who think they're good listeners are listening for the pause in noise so they can insert their own opinion. They're not actually kind of ingesting what's being said, they're waiting for their chance to talk. So how did you develop that skill as a listener and what does that open up for you what does that allow you to do as a consultant mm -hmm. um i think part of it is simply time and time gives you confidence waiting for the pause means you're spending your time thinking about what you're going to say during that pause and you're not listening and you're likely doing that because you're nervous or thinking about what others will think of you. So I find that if I can take a step back and not be focused on that and truly understand and listen to what people are saying, the questions come and the questions are related to what I've just heard. Uh, and so I think there's like a natural element of if I've, I've had enough experience to understand and be comfortable with what I don't know, then this is all in the spirit of understanding more. I'm not here to have a perspective, maybe yet. I'm not here to, again, tell you the answer. I'm actually here to learn. And the only way I'm going to learn is actually listening to you and probe more. This is also, and this is, and this is um, will not be new. People talk about there are no dumb questions. There really aren't. One thing I learned early on, if I ask the question that's really top of mind that feels like a stupid question, there are probably two other people that have the same question. It, no matter what, no matter what. So by asking the stupid questions or repeating or trying to understand or retest your understanding of what someone has said, expands everybody's thinking. If, if I'm listening to you and I don't understand it, 
instead of trying to shift the conversation to something I know something about, I'm going to ask you to explain it. I'm going to say, I think I understand it in this way. Is that right? Or am I uh, help me with this? And that's what expands everyone's knowledge of the topic, the issue, whatever we're kind of trying to grapple with. Because I want to understand in the spirit of making everything more productive in the long run versus making myself look good or or trying to prove something to somebody else. So in that spirit, yeah, um, I'm going to ask you the, the dumb question that maybe two of our listeners are, are wondering. Sure. What would you say you do here with us? You know, how would you define your relationship with feeding Tampa Bay? I would say I've acted as an advisor. And, and, and I'll, I'll go a little bit more into that. The work we've done with you over the past year is very unique, Matt, in that we've had the chance to sometimes go pretty deep and sometimes not. But we've been along for the journey as an advisor and a thought partner. Advisor meaning giving advice, right? Not presupposing an answer, right? But we really are listening and partnering with you and offering advice based upon the questions we ask, a little bit of our pattern recognition. So, you know, Feeding Tampa Bay has gone through this amazing journey more than it's been more than a year, right? Where you've really taken a step back and said, not only is the world changing and our understanding of what we do in this space has certainly evolved already up to this point in time, we've got amazing opportunities ahead of us. These are strategic questions. In other words, there are big questions that we need to answer that alter where we put our time and resources. That's strategy. And in a world of scarce resources for a company, for a nonprofit, you've got to make choices. Right? You, can, you can use your time and money in this way or that way. And for a nonprofit, it's about the impact you can create. Right? Um, I've worked with, gosh, probably close to 60 or 70 nonprofits over the past 10 years. So I've, I have some pattern recognition around the kinds of questions organizations get stuck. I've got some pattern recognition around how the strategy process can be challenging right, the do's and don'ts and the pitfalls that I can be here to offer the advice to steer you in this way or in that way. And at this point, I do have some pattern recognition around what I call different, you know, impact models, right, and the ways in which organizations make choices to do more in better ways. So there's some there's some probing there an offering of of what I've seen in other places and to react to how I see you evolving this work so far. So at the end of the day, I'm sitting on a on a call with Matt, with Thomas, with Catherine, and we are very much rolling up our sleeves. Oftentimes, consulting teams, uh, I think that there's a the, the, the model has evolved, right? From consultants often would come in and what we brought was data. Like we could go to the library and do a ton of research and bring data and charts to you and you make some decisions um, to a world in which you have the data, right? Um, ultimately, they're your decisions, but I'm here to help guide you towards those decisions. 
Now we might have some some team members who come and offer some depth of analysis that we can also bring to the table, but it's really about guiding the decision-making at the end of the day. So one other thing I'll say that organizations like Feeding Tampa Bay benefit from having this model is, A, we're in a position to name things and ask questions that not everyone within the organization might be able to. So we provide as much objectivity as we can to this process. And at the end of the day, either we can be, um, you know, the scapegoat, not that this was the, the case with Feeding Tampa Bay, but when things go bad or, or perhaps unpopular decisions are made, that's okay because, you know, we can often take on some of that. Um, and we can ask questions that we think might be out there but are unspoken. We can name points of tension that are out there that are often unspoken or less visible. And we can do that in a pretty safe way if we get to positions of trust with the organization across a bunch of different levels. So I'm going to put that one in my back pocket that if things go sideways, it was your fault. Got <laughs> <Tell me>. it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she just accepted the challenge. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as you mentioned, we've been working together, you know, a mm-hmm. little over a year. Does that just mean we're slow learners or, or what's the value <laughs> in the time that we've taken together? Yeah. No, as I said, this is fairly unique. Um, not not for the social sector, but in the way that, that we often work. We, we tend to work in shorter sprints with full consulting teams really taking on a lot of the work that happens when, when it's connected to strategy. And we've, we've talked about this, Matt. Feeding Tampa Bay is one of the fewer organizations that, that's truly held the process, both in terms of engaging and really you know, leading on the content and has pulled on external resources like the Monitor Institute to get advice, to get guidance, to perhaps do some you know, creation of, and synthesis of insights, but it's really the organization that's led this work. And there are all, all kinds of reasons why that's really, really important. So um, I would say the best strategies strike the right balance between um, moving fast enough that you don't lose momentum or you don't get planning fatigue, right? Or strategy fatigue, which is a real thing but you don't wanna go so fast that you're not, uh, bringing along isn't quite the right word. I was gonna say you're not bringing on people because bringing, if, you're, if you're just bringing the organization and bringing the community along, that's not well done, right? You actually want to draw out the knowledge, the experience, the proximity into the process. So that way the strategy is better and that takes time. I, I have this image that just popped into my head of Forrest Gump where he's just running and people start running with him and then <laughs> yeah. he stops and he says he's done and everybody's like in the middle of Utah going, what do I do now? Yeah, right? but now, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So I wonder if everyone who's been involved in this is also like, now where are we? <laughs> yeah, hopefully that's not what the image will be when we're done with this process. But yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think it's an excellent point that we have taken the time to engage and create ownership amongst our team and our board and mm-hmm. our community. Mm-hmm. And it's a harder road. It's a longer road. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I feel like when we emerge with a new strategic plan, 
everyone will see themselves in it in a different way. Yes. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, there's a saying, I don't even know who, who said this. I'm sure it's some, some strategy guru from somewhere who we often quote, which says culture eats strategy for lunch. Mm-hmm. You've all heard this, which is you can put something on, on a piece of paper, you can create a, a report. It might, it might look great and have a beautiful communications plan. And if the organization isn't ready to move on that, you might as well not have done it. And so to like, to that point, it's not only the process and the path that gets culture embedded in it, but it's even the, the, the start of, of this kind of work and understanding where people are. A wonderful leader who's beginning strategy work thinks about all of the different stakeholders and where they are today. Um, that leader's hunch of where the strategy will lead you and how, how great a distance that is and, and what's the work to be done. For some organizations, they don't need to spend a year because either the path is so obvious and or everyone is really aligned in some meaningful way, but that's usually not the case. It's, it's usually not the case, but being really thoughtful about how to bring people into the work, who needs to be a part of it, right? Who needs to be brought along, but who needs to be really embedded in the work to make it better? It's, it's those leaders that are thinking about that that do this well. And I think that's one of the really unique parts for us as an organization is that we don't really do anything on our own. You know, we have to bring along 55,000 volunteers and 400 agencies and, you know, 2,000 business partners. And so, you know, yes, there will be ones that drop off along the way and ones that join in, they, they see the, the pathway, but, um, you know, we're a, we're way past a, a minivan, right? We have a, a big crew in, in our caravan that we have to bring along. Uh, and, and, that's, and that's why this process, the year-long deep community engagement, partner engagement, staff engagement worked for you um, and, and will continue to work and is like so essential for anyone who's playing in, a, in an issue like food insecurity, right? If you were to take on this process and you didn't have those networks, the relationships, sort of the, the subtle relational aspect of this work is so important. If you didn't have those relationships, you still could have called folks and said, would you be willing to, to, you know, to be a part of this learning team or this learning group over the summer? But you wouldn't have got to, to where you are today. And you certainly wouldn't have the breadth of insight that gets to this sort of holistic understanding of the problem. So you started with the implicit sort of relational piece of it, which is amazing. Yeah, it, it's been quite the ride for sure. So this is the the time when, uh, when my sons are getting their report cards for the end of this uh, semester. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious what the Feeding Tampa Bay report card is. And don't worry, if we don't like your answer, Ed, we'll just edit it out. You can just um, edit it out. Yeah. You can be thoughtful about this, Matt. <laughs> Put you on the spot for sure. No, well, it's because there's, um, it's worth thinking about 
the arc of of when this started to where you are today and i think what sits in the future so there's there's something and i was i was thinking of thomas as a leader when i was talking about you know having the foresight of, of how you need to bring individuals and and groups along right um you know thomas knew that there was you know potential incredible opportunity right with the new site and continuing investment and like so many organizations on the back end of COVID, actually found themselves with a whole lot of opportunity needed to make sense of it. So I could, I understand Thomas thinking about the long arc of this work way back when, and that's, that's, that's pretty powerful and pretty important. Um, I did ask Thomas early on in one of our conversations when we were just exploring whether it made sense to do some work together of whether he knew the answer. Oftentimes an organization or an organizational leader, most importantly, the CEO, sometimes they know the answer and they need this process to flesh it out, to validate it, to bring data, to engage others. And Tom said, actually, I don't, right? Actually, this is really important. I I, I don't have, have the answer. And I believe this process is really important to get us there. Um, so that is like, an A plus in terms of being honest about what you're, where you're starting from. I'm also okay with someone telling me I know the answer, but I want them to tell me, and we sort of un- unpack that. Um, the second piece is a real openness across this entire team to, and we continue to do this over and over again, Matt, to not get fixated on feeding Tampa Bay instead to really get fixated on the underlying drivers that are creating the conditions of need right in your community and for an organization that's that's been around for a long time that has incredible reach that oftentimes talks about your output talks about meals and um and and what you do and the incredible breadth of what you do for the community either directly or through your partnerships, it's hard to do that. And so you score very high <laughs> on, 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 on that grade of really taking a step back and being obsessed with the problem and not the solution and the answer. And we spent a lot of time not talking about feeding Tampa Bay at all. That can get really uncomfortable for lots of folks, for board members, for staff who have ideas, right? Who are who are who are in the community, who are in the warehouse, who are in the cafe, and they've got so much to bring to this. And we just asked ask them to actually step back with us um, and let's let's do some learning that goes beyond what we do and instead focus on right how we can help tackle this problem. Um, those organizations and those leaders who are open to that thinking are the ones that are gonna go really far because they're also okay with dumping something if it's not working in the spirit of making choices, right? Versus holding on to your baby or holding on to the message or the brand or the wins that you've had. It's harder to do that. Yeah. I, and I think throughout this whole process, that is both the thing that has been most challenging and the thing that has been most rewarding. Mm. And I know those things often go together, yeah. but it has been very challenging for all of these high achievers, mm-hmm. problem solvers, you know, people who care deeply about making the world around them better. 
to step back and say, stop solving and start learning. Yeah. Start listening. Uh, I, you know, we had this conversation many times over the last year about having to be almost belligerent about not allowing people to solve the problem until we can fully understand it. Um, and I've really appreciated your approach to that with us to to really validate that feeling, to push us beyond thinking about feeding Tampa Bay, because we can rearrange things or we can take uh, an incremental step forward, but that won't materially change the conditions of our community and the people that we serve. And that's been our guiding principle from day one, I feel, mm-hmm. is how do we materially change the lives of the people who turn to us when they're in and you've really helped us think through that. Yeah, um, it's great to hear that. And it, it, I'll continue to emphasize, it's really hard to, to do that step back. But what you find is organization that doesn't do that, that goes straight to the answer, um, or even what have we learned about what we do, what we do well and what we don't, what are we going to change about what we do and what we don't, often find months into the work that's, it just takes one person, one very um, astute person to say, but what are we solving for here, right? What is this? Le- what does this lead to, right? Not what are our outputs, what are we telling funders, but rather, is anyone going to be materially better for this work versus somebody else doing this work? Where you all are in this work for the mission and the impact, right? You're not creating market share. You're not selling widgets. You know, at the end of the day, the work, the time, the money that funders and others are putting into this organization are all in service of improving people's lives in the community and as a whole. So what we don't want to do is waste that. And if you can't understand what you should be doing in the context of that whole, then you end up with silos, you end up with duplication of resources, all of those things. But it's definitely a mindset shift. You're not here to make Feeding Tampa Bay bigger and better and do more. That's not what that's not what you're you're there to do. And it's it's hard to do that sometimes. And we and you've been incredibly helpful to us in reminding us and bringing us back to that North Star, you know, because it it is so natural to move into a place of solving for me, right? Mm-hmm. Solving for our organization, solving mm-hmm. for our situation or our perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is very unnatural to step outside of your own daily pressures, your own kind of scorecard or, or grades for, for lack of a better term. And flip the whole script over on its head and and look at it from the perspective of the person who engages with us. And we talk about this a lot. You know, Shannon came to us from Trinity Cafe when we merged. And she's been part of that organizational reset. Um, I know you've heard it a million times from us, but Trinity really truly has enabled us to flip that on its head and think about the individual comes in in need of a meal. Mm-hmm. Um, so, after a year, after you know, given your 
your experience with a whole bunch of other nonprofits that aren't quite as good as us, <laughs> uh, but are wonderful nonetheless. Of course. Uh, what do you see on the horizon for us? What do you see as, as what comes next? So a, a couple of things. My hunch is that the work that you've done in community with staff, with your partners, with individuals, you will have, and Matt, you're already, you're already alluding to this, you've learned a new way to sort of learn about, about the system, about the work, about your community. So my expectation, but also my hope is that this way of learning and listening and taking that in and making choices and adaptations to what you do, I suspect that will carry on. A big, a big thing to keep in mind with this work is that it's not a plan that maps out a clean and beautiful linear path for the next three years. I mean, there will be some choices that are set in stone, right? There's some, you know, there's some capital going into a particular physical place and what you what you build there for sure. But there is so much that will continue to evolve around you. And I feel and hope that this process gives you all the opportunity to name changes, to name opportunities, to learn as you go. So that way you're not uh, you're not spending the year of deep listening and learning with a strategy on the back end over and over and over again. This starts to become more of your own muscle memory and your habit as an organization. Right. And so I'm, I can see that happening because you all did it. You didn't hire a, a consultant to do this work. You all did this. So you have a new way of thinking. We often talked about the experience of everyone who's been involved in this. There's building some new experiences and competencies around strategy work and learning. And you all have that now. You're going to be thinking differently. You're going to be asking different questions. You're going to be making suggestions. And the best strategy is one that has enough guardrails to get you headed in the right direction but you don't feel bound by it, right? Think about where we were, you know, a little over three years ago, right? We lived in a very different world than we live in today, right? And so imagine what could come next in the next five years or in the next two years or next year. Um, and so having the, the, uh, the ability and the foresight to be comfortable with Having these kinds of conversations, making changes and adaptions is like is really, really important. I've, I, I only have like one instance of a former client who's come back to us at the end of what now don't they don't even exist, a five year strategy and said it worked perfectly. We just took that. We, we exactly executed it as you said, never, except for once, except for once. And I still don't know what happened there. <laughs> And that's okay, right? That's okay. So I'm 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 pretty confident, and so so there's there's that piece. I think you've got the the ability to adapt, to learn, to set this thing in motion, and make changes as needed, which is really important. Going back to the relational aspect of this, the intersectionality of the issues of that are connected to food insecurity, which we got into the depth of over the course of our work. The fact that Feeding Tampa Bay is both seen as a leader in, in a networker within the region, has the relationships for change to happen, 
is incredible, right? And so, and so that's the other thing that gives me both confidence and hope as you as you carry forward in this work. And that and that takes time as well. So you're already in a really good position. That's why this past year was successful, and that's why you'll be successful going forward. And then I, who I, knows what Mother Nature will throw at all of us? Right. That's true. That's true. I love the term you used, thought partner. Um, what a wonderful phrase that is. I was just wondering, you know, because you guys have worked together and is there, are there any, in the past year of working together, are there any successes that you'd like to share or where you were, we were enlightened um, as a team, Matt, um, kind of almost proof points over what's happened over the past year. Are there a few things that come to mind that have resulted out of this work? Ooh. I think, you know, I mentioned this in our, in our last podcast, but truly internalizing as an organization, the understanding that food will not solve food insecurity. Right. That is a paradigm shifting, game changing, priority shifting, understanding. If we take that bit of knowledge, all sign on to it and say, yes, we believe this to be true, then it will impact every decision we make organizationally because it will no longer be okay to just up our meal count. It will no longer be okay to just put more pounds of food in more places in the community because we know that's an emergency response. And what we want to do is solve. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Any thoughts on that, Joanna? Any further thoughts? I'm, I'm conscious of time because I could spend 20 minutes of, of why why that's why that's important, um, and and go go off into the into the world of of systems change theory and strategy and all of those things. But what what I will say is more of just a a real congratulations is my, my hunch is Matt two years ago or even eighteen months ago a statement like that would have been at um, at a minimum just confusing to most to most folks, mm -hmm. especially your stakeholders on the periphery. Think about your board members, especially board members who might be new to Feeding Tampa Bay, who just joined in the last year or two and have a, a you know, a, a certain narrative in their mind of, um, you know, uh, what an organization like Feeding Tampa Bay does, right, in the community. To a place where we can actually understand what that statement both means in an understanding of the problem and what it implies for what you do. So an openness and an eagerness to unpack the implications is a huge win and, and, and across and across all and and there are so many parallels to this in other other places in the social sector if we were to move to move beyond food you know problems that connect so many different elements of a system or a community and it's that willingness to, to explore it, to learn it, to understand it, and to find your place in it, to move beyond simply, you know, certain certain outputs 
um, is really important. And a lot, a lot of organizations in the field are there, but so many are not. Um, and the, the last thing I'll say is um, certainly operating nonprofits grapple with this a lot, right? How do we make choices around what we do that takes us beyond the widgets, the outputs, the things that we directly do with our with our community and with our constituents. Oftentimes the funders of organizations also need to be brought along because what they hold um, operating nonprofits accountable for can be in direct conflict ultimately with, with what the organization thinks is ultimately most important for them to do. So there are, there are two important pieces here is the continued evolution of the philanthropic sector to understand the systems elements and all of this and be comfortable funding um, um, work that goes beyond uh, direct impact and um, discrete measurable outputs towards outcomes, right? Capital that is uh, longer, that is patient, um, that's often unrestricted. I love that it's yeah. patient. And that's what uh, we need to do is be patient. It's very exciting times ahead of us. Joanna, thank you for um, standing alongside us and helping us get there. And now it's up to us to start to continue growth and moving forward to really end hunger um, and not just place meals on tables. Although that's an important start, but we know there's a lot more work ahead. Um, thank you so much, Matt, for joining us back. Can't wait to have you back once again. And uh, everyone have a wonderful holiday. Right, same to you, Shannon. It's always good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I'll be, I'm not definitely not going away. I'll be, I'll be checking in with you all every now and then. Perfect. We'd love to have you back and give an update. Of course. Absolutely. Excellent. Okay. Good to see you all. You can learn more about Feeding Tampa Bay and how to join the movement at feedingtampabay.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, and TikTok at Feeding Tampa Bay.